This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. I'm going to say very quickly what the themes of the season are, so we remind ourselves of that, and see how all three of the readings this morning uh, talk about this, uh, about the, the season of Advent and most, if not all, of the themes. About a month or two ago, the people who come frequently to Episcopalian 101 asked me if at this at the class I would talk about the Bible as a narrative. Uh, the word narrative is very popular these days. If you watch the news, everybody's talking about the narrative. It's like the word iconic. You hear the word iconic to the point of distraction, in my opinion. In any case, the Bible is a narrative, and my generation of clergy, uh, at least in the mainline churches, uh, were, were taught about biblical criticism, and the scholarly way of doing that focused itself on the individual passages and how they might be interpreted and all of the issues about that. And what got lost sight of was the fact that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is a narrative. And Christian people believe that what is in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, is a, a precursor to the coming of Jesus. And so the early Christians read in the Hebrew Bible, which was their sacred text before the New Testament was written, they saw on every page the person of Jesus. And so today we read from Micah uh, about that. But first, here are the themes. Hope, honesty, openness, persistence, enthusiasm, joy, the sure and clear understanding that the conundrums, the uncertainties, and the ambiguities of life will come into surer and clearer focus for us as we live and we lead some lives of intention with regard to seeking that clarity. Expectation, making use of the full force and effect of your imaginative powers to understand what might be. You know, we're in a part of the world here in the Silicon Valley where we have seen people use their imaginative powers in a way that has been uh, just astounding. And that's in a big way of understanding this. But, you know, you and I, in terms of the ordinary, commonplace activities of our lives, also need to use imagination. And people who are good leaders are able to understand the role and the place of using your imaginative powers uh, when you're in a position of leadership. It's important. And finally, repentance looking at your life in a new way. That focus is really on the first couple of weeks in Advent, but it has something to do with the fact of how we understand looking at our life in a new way. Let me just say briefly something about sin. Just popped into my head, lots of things do. In, in, the, in the original language, languages, sin in the New Testament the Greek word that is used is hamartia. Hamartia means to miss the mark. Okay? 
to miss the mark. So when you and I think about turning away from sin and into a new way of thinking about our life, are concerned about how we hit the mark the next time. We're not focused on what a woeful condition we're in because we've missed it. There are two versions of Christianity, you know. To lament that and, and, and sort of marinate in your remorse and regret or to understand that in some way you have now the opportunity to, to make changes. Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. So when we think about repentance, it's important. Two words, metanoia means to turn around, to repent, to look at your life in a new way. And the origins of the word have to do with the means by which we, in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, make some resolve with regard to changing. And the other word, which is used less frequently, is epistrophe which means to do the same thing, but to decide as you do that how you're going to put it in your hands. How are you going to make it so? I've told you I get up every morning, and the first thing that I say is, <clears throat> Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation. How do I begin to understand uh, being always moving towards that center in the midst of all the ambiguities, distractions, and difficulties of life, the hurly-burly of life? So, Micah is speaking today about a couple of things in the great narrative. One of them is, for Christian people, is the origin of King David was Bethlehem. And there's going to be some big birth coming from Bethlehem. Zechariah means that it has to do with the restoration of Jerusalem. The people who were living at the time of Jesus said to themselves, we are hoping for the immediate coming of the Messiah and the Messiah is going to be both a kingly Messiah and a priestly Messiah. And we'll get some of that in Hebrews today. And so, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. So this narrative is about the continuity of the history of salvation. God's presence in history and our part as we respond to that reality both personally, subjectively, and corporately as a community of faith, or making a difference in the world. Not just some navel-gazing exercise where, ah, I have it now. Right? So this first reading is about restoration. A lot of people who were alive at the time of Jesus believed that the return from exile in Babylon which occurred a long time ago, still did not come to its full completion until the Messiah came. And so Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, is going to encourage people to believe that he is the one. In him is the completion of the restorative processes of God, 
that both have a corporate thing to them and a personal thing, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. The, the, the possibility for healing and wholeness. Remember the words that are used in both the ancient languages? To save are also the same words that are used for to heal. To make complete. To make whole. So Micah sets us up now for this great narrative and in the epistle to the Hebrews I realized in my ministry towards the last two or three years of my parish ministry that I've actually begun to understand Hebrews. So I'm wondering if there's something that's gone wrong here. But you hear me say all the time, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, which is in the epistle to Hebrews, we understand Jesus as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life. Now, in the reading today, we have a discussion of how Jesus, in the giving of himself, brings to an end the whole sacrificial system that was in place in the temple in Jerusalem by giving up his body to be killed. So that's one focus, isn't it? But it goes on to say something about the body in a way that makes us connect to the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. How in our bodies are we able now to be to the world the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be? There's a divide in Christian, in Christian theology or in approach. And in Anglicanism, we have both of these things together in tension. One of them is the view that the work of Jesus Christ has to do now with how our response involves participation in this. Most, a lot of the biblical scholarship about Paul in the last 25 years has had to do with the idea that the centerpiece was not justification by grace through faith, but in participation in Christ. And there are others who believe the focus is still on Jesus giving up his body to save us the atonement for the sins of humanity. <clears throat> My own preference is for participation. I'll say more about this on Christmas, but it has to do with whether you want to understand yourself as a pickle marinating in God's grace and becoming now an instrument of God's grace through the slow, steady process of the working of God, or you want to be a Pop-Tart, <laughs> where you're toasted instantly and you've got it, right? Because there are a lot of people who labor to, to be that. And it's the difference between somebody who says, I've had a conversion experience, and somebody who just goes and is there, you know? A couple of weeks ago we read from Psalm 132 and it reminded me of the importance of being there. When I was in seminary in my second year I had the worst crisis of faith I'd ever had. I'd never really had one before I was in seminary. And I said to myself, if I have to walk into that chapel one more time, I'm going to scream. 
And I did. I walked into Evensong. I'd said it during the day. I was just having the blues. And I walked into the chapel for Evensong. And the first psalm we sang was Psalm 132, the first verse. Lord, remember David and all the troubles he has endured. <laughs> if I hadn't have been there, I wouldn't have heard it, right? So there's something to that. So Hebrews tells us about participation as well as the giving of self. How do we understand that? It means that the, the slow, steady work of God's grace begins to produce in the soul, in the human person. The soul, in the old definition, I still use it, is the reason and the will. How, in terms of the work of the reason and the will, do we slowly feel the impulse to extend, to be generous? I'm not talking about this in religious terms only but how you are a decent human being. Remember the Dalai Lama a number of years ago in an interview when he was in San Francisco and they said, what's the key to all this? And he said, it's very important to be a good person. It's very important to be a good person. You mean that's all? Well, not really, but it is pretty much. And God's grace works on us in this way. So in the reading from the gospel, we have Mary, very prominent in what is known as the visitation, where he com she comes to see her kinswoman Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, there's some uh, idea that uh, Jesus and John the Baptist may have been related. She goes to Elizabeth. The baby leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth says, uh, gives Mary a title. Blessed. When I was about to go off to seminary a long time ago, I was at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, which was my home parish. And I was standing at the door with Father Wilder, the rector. I don't know how I ended up there, but he wanted me to be there and press the flesh, as LBJ used to say. And I was standing at the door, and someone came out and said to him, <clears throat> Father, Father Wilder, don't you think that saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to Rome. And he said, no, Edna, I think it's getting dangerously close to the gospel according to St. Luke. But I thought I'd read to you something from a book I recommend. It's called An Anglican Catechism by Edward Norman. Edward Norman was the chancellor of York Minster in England. Anglican priest. And in this catechism, he talks about Mary and Anglicans. I talked about this last week in my sermon. I'm going to say it again. It is possible, but not realistic, to contend that the Church of England is by negative deduction, not hostile to Marian devotions, 
on the grounds that there have been no authoritative retractions of those decrees of the early councils of the Universal Church, which originally sanctioned them. But the Church of England does not have the constitutional means of making any such pronouncements, so the matter remains indecisively open, and attitudes to the place of the Virgin differ according to styles of churchmanship and spiritual psychology. There can be no doubt, for it is a matter of historical record, that the Church of England has in practice conducted its liturgical development and its theological exegesis as if the Virgin has no place in the scheme of salvation beyond that of being the human mother of our Lord. Paradoxically, however, the modern church has decided in its liturgical calendar to choose the day in August, which is universally recognized as the Feast of the Assumption, as a special feast of Mary. It is surely disingenuous to suppose that the selection of this day was unassociated with the doctrine of the Assumption, or that Marian devotions would not thereby be encouraged. Perhaps the question is best regarded as one in which Anglican opinion is in transition. In 1972, I heard at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee a talk the Trinity Institute had come out, Trinity Church Wall Street, they had, uh, had come out to Milwaukee and they had speakers and one of the speakers was Cardinal Sunens, the Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium. And he looked at everybody and said, when you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, a theological concept does not have a mother. So, I think it's important to venerate Mary. Carl Jung, in his writing, said that Mary completes the way in which Christians understand the, the work of God in the world. And it's through her that Jesus receives his humanity in the great narrative, in the great tradition. But today, <clears throat> at the Annunciation, we have the focus on Mary's obedience and her immediate response, no dithering, except whatever may have gone on internally that we don't hear about. But today, Luke puts in the mouth of Mary an amazing song that is used by, has been used by Western Christians for a long, long time. Elizabeth Johnson, a great theologian, she wrote a good book a long time ago now called She Who Is. It's a very good theological book about, it's feminist, it's terrific. And I was surfing the internet this week to prepare this sermon and I ran into an article 
by Elizabeth Johnson titled, Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary. And in the article, she quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As some of you may not know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who left Germany during the time of Hitler's rise, moved to the United States, and he preached uh, against the Nazis. He went to the United States and decided to return to Germany during World War II, and in 1945, he was executed by the Nazis. I think he was one of the guys that Hitler told his minions to film the execution so he, when he was, wasn't busy, he could watch it. Yeah. If you don't remind yourself of things like that, those, that stuff will come back. Bonhoeffer wrote about Mary as it relates to the Magnificat, and he said this, the Magnificat is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth, swelling with new life by the power of the Spirit and affirmed by her kinswoman Elizabeth, Mary sings a song that proclaims God's gracious effective compassion. So, uh, she didn't appear to me to be a lightweight. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that, that song is in Mary's mouth in Luke's Gospel. <coughs> These are called the infancy narratives, by the way, and they're only in Matthew and in Luke. And Luke's focus in his gospel, more than any other gospel writer, is concerned about issues of social justice and equity and their importance. And we see it here in The God-Bearer. Some of you may ask yourself why I don't use the term Blessed Virgin Mary. I use the term translated into English of Theotokos, which is what the Eastern Church uses. And it means God-bearer. And for me personally, and it's, I've indulged myself in terms of my own personal piety, that is an easier way to appropriate this whole idea of who Mary is. You know? That Jesus receives his humanity from the God-bearer, the one who carried him. 
and the one who sings the Magnificat. So as we move immediately to Christmas, pretty soon, th uh, thank, give thanks for God's restoration plan. God has a restoration plan. And remember that your body is an instrument of God's will. And so your habits of being and relating are important. And finally, give thanks for Mary the God-bearer, who in modeling holiness, faith, obedience, constitutes a prophetic witness to God's yes to humanity. Amen. <laughs>